Hello, Feisties. I'm Sarah Gross, CEO and founder of Feisty Media. And I'm here to tell you that our foundational strength training course, Strong, is on sale now through April 10th. If you're like me, you probably get a lot of crap in your Instagram or Facebook feed telling you how you should look or how you will feel if you look a certain way. As summer approaches, this only gets worse. We are told we should have a quote unquote summer body as if our bodies somehow morph into something completely different just because the weather changes. And frankly, over here at Feisty Media, we are totally sick of it. Because at Feisty, our vision is to build an empowering culture for active women. We want to shift our attention away from what our bodies look like and focus instead on what our bodies can do especially during the summer months when having the physical strength to do the activities we love is so important. The Strong Course is designed to take any woman, regardless of your starting point, through everything you need to know to level up your strength training journey. It includes a 16-week program to help you progress from wherever you are to lifting heavy or heavy-ish with dumbbells or a barbell. It also includes modules on the physiology of strength training for women, nutrition, how we keep ourselves injury free and more. I want every woman to be able to do the things that bring her joy and be strong enough to do them for life. Enrollment in this course is now open and you can sign up and learn more at womensperformance.com forward slash strong or check the show notes of this episode for the link. And for those of you who are among the 800 women who have already taken the Strong Course with one of our previous cohorts, congratulations on taking the plunge. And to the rest of you, see you in the course in April. Make this summer your strongest and best ever. Head over to womensperformance.com forward slash strong today. Welcome to All Bodies on Bikes, the podcast, where all bodies are good bodies, all bikes are good bikes, and all rides should be celebrated. All Bodies on Bikes is a movement to create and foster a size-inclusive bike community. So join your hosts. I'm Maggie. And I'm Marley. As we explore the complexities of the biking world, help us break down barriers and create the world that we want to see. And don't forget that all bodies really means all bodies, not just larger bodies but bodies of all sizes, ages, races, abilities, genders, sexualities, and beyond. Come along for the ride. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the All Bodies on Bikes podcast. Uh, This is Marley. And this is Maggie. And we just wanted to chat with you a little bit before we get to our guest today. Um, Some of you might have seen my Instagram post. This is Marley talking. Um, I sound like a, uh, I don't know if I should say this or not, but I feel like my voice sounds like a prepubescent male uh, because I'm getting over a cold. Um, Yeah, it's kind of been hellish, Um, but uh, just wanted to come and talk transparently um, because a lot of you have reached out about my Instagram post yesterday. Um, as you may know, and this is going to come out in a couple weeks. So, uh, by the time this comes out, I will hopefully be, have another update for you. Um, 
but basically I was in Denver this weekend, kind of what should have been like crowning achievement of my career. I was at the No Man's Land Film Festival uh, talking on an athlete panel on stage with professional skier Rachel Burke, professional climber Genevieve Walker, um, student athlete Rosalie Fish. And I felt absolutely nothing. I, you know, realized sitting in my hotel room afterwards that I was just kind of numb inside. And honestly, these are feelings that I've been dealing with for a while. Um, I'd say even going back to like Steamboat Gravel last year, when should have been epically stoked that, you know, we brought 15 athletes to town and had this pretty remarkable experience. And I've just been feeling really kind of emotionless. And um, I have no idea what made me post it yesterday. Um, But I I think I just kind of hit a wall of like, no, my life shouldn't be this way. Um, And a lot of you reached out um, with some incredibly helpful and heartfelt messages. So I just want to say thank you and let folks know that um, I reached out to a couple therapists today. Um, and maybe most helpfully, I talked with my stepmom, who she's a counselor, and she gave me some words to identify what I'm feeling, and mm, that yeah. or not feeling, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 it's funny because <laughs> life is hard, and if you can't laugh about it, what can you laugh You're at? You're gonna go a little crazy if you can't laugh about it. Exactly. Honestly. Yeah. So my my stepmom told me, you know, there's couple different things that might be going on, um, emotional flatlining, uh, anhedonia. Um, and obviously I'm not diagnosed yet. Um, but it, it definitely gave me some comfort to know that like this has a name and that there is hope out there. Um, so I, you know, I don't know what the next couple of weeks are going to look like in terms of work. Um, I think this podcast is really therapeutic for me in terms of, you know, talking to other folks and hearing their stories and hearing their stoke. Um, but just want to be transparent that, you know, there's a lot going on and it's okay to not be okay sometimes. Yeah. And that's, it's so fantastic, Marley, that you're willing to share that with us because there, there are other people that are sitting in their, their own little boxes going, I'm the only one that feels this way. I'm going crazy. There's something wrong with me. Um, and, and being so open about that, um, first of all, for other people can help you feel a little less alone. And then you being honest about it can help them feel less alone. So I hope so. Um, you know, it's, it's weird. I struggled with depression, like all through high school. Um, I was super high functioning and I think that this is kind of, um, well, I guess back to that, I was super high functioning, you know, I was freaking valedictorian of my high school. I've done a really good job throughout my entire life of stuffing everything down and mm-hmm. putting on a really brave face for the world. And I think I'm just getting to the point where I realize, like, I don't have to do that. Um, yep. And I have always, at least publicly on Instagram and, you know, my blog talked about uh, being transparent and my struggles. But at the same time, I haven't been fully transparent about what I'm feeling. So I'm hoping that, you know, by sharing this with the world, maybe there'll be a little bit of grace. Um, A lot of folks suggested that I get off social media. Unfortunately, that's not an option for me right now. I have sponsors who expect certain things. It's in my contract to post certain things. So just getting off social media isn't 
necessarily an option for me. Um, I mean, I can always schedule things and be more intentional about it, but that's also how I connect with a lot of people. Um, so I don't have any answers right now, but I'm hopeful that, um, there is some hope out there and some, some progress that can be made at least because I really do live a pretty remarkable life and it's unfortunate to not feel the joy. So, um, our guest just joined us, uh, and I'm going to go ahead and stop recording and then we'll, uh, come back in just a few minutes and chat with Cameron Sanders. So anyway, thank you everybody for, um, you know, hearing us out and being with us on this journey and just being human with us. All right, friends, welcome back. Um, we have a, an amazing guest today. Uh, his name is Cameron Sanders. And uh, I think you might be our first male identifying guest that we've had on the podcast. So welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome. Really Cameron? excited to be here. Of course. Well, um, let's tell you a little bit about Cameron. Uh, Cameron Sanders is a man of many hats, which I love because there are three of us and I'm the only one wearing a hat. Uh, He's worn a spelunking helmet, a bicycle helmet, a race director's cap, a Stetson as a park ranger for 13 years, and most recently a work hat as the vice president of product development and marketing for Wren Sports. Thanks for hanging out with us, Cameron. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks for, and I I see your Zoom background. Uh, You are coming to us from Alaska, is that correct? That is correct. Anchorage, Alaska, to be precise, where like most of us live in Alaska, but not all. <laughs> uh, how are things up there right now? Is it a snowy winter? Is it how's it been going? It's snowy. Um, it's been a lot warmer than usual. Usually if the rest of the country's in like a polar vortex, we're getting like a bunch of Japanese warm moisture that's coming up to us. Um so yeah, basically if it's cold in the lower 48, it's um I'm doing air quotes here hot for us (laughs) um but yeah it's uh supposed to be in the mid 40s this week which is crazy that's like way 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 too warm yeah Um, but uh yesterday i was on the iditarod trail watching mushers go out on their you know thousand plus mile journey across alaska and it started off negative 18 um degrees fahrenheit and it got in the mid teens um which that's a big temperature swing for us up here we don't have big temperature swings because we don't have a lot of differentiation in night and day cycles um this is the time of year where we will get that um it's beginning to feel like a normal kind of day for the rest of the world for us which only happens in fall and spring and it changes really quickly I remember I went on a uh, backpacking trip uh, up on the Kenai Peninsula a couple years ago, and I remember waking up at two in the morning and stumbling out of my tent to use the restroom, and I was like, oh, I don't need a headlamp. Okay, that was something I did not need to pack for this trip, Um, but it was just such a magical landscape. Yeah, it's really quite a spectacular place. And when people are like, how do you deal with the summers and winters, especially the dark winters? It's like, well, I'm a person who gets easily bored. And having basically two worlds you live in that are nothing like each other. I mean, nothing like each other from summer to winter. It's like you live in two spots. That's remarkable. Um, Well, this podcast is about bicycles. um, And so while we will touch on Alaska a little bit, um, let's dive into Cameron and bicycles. Um, So I guess to start out, like, 
how did you get into cycling? I read your bio and you were a spelunker first. Um, so caves, um, how did you go from caving to park ranger to bicycles? Yeah. So caving was my gateway sport. I grew up in Southern Missouri. Um, I think you're down in Arkansas right now. Lots of caves down there. Um, we call it karst. That's limestone, dolomite, marble stuff that's eroded away by water. Um, yeah, I mean, I could give you a whole podcast series on caves and how I got into them. But um, <laughs> basically, to long story short, my wilderness ethic started in caving. And I was super, super, super lucky uh, to kind of be a troubled youth um, who needed some something or another. And I just fell in with the right crowd of like graduates from um, St. Louis University who were in the middle of the backwoods doing caves and they needed somebody to squeeze into little holes. Um, I definitely can't do that anymore. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I did then. Um, and uh, yeah, I got to, to literally map caves for a job cool. before I came to Alaska that like built the, you know, Alexander super tramp or, you know, Chris McCandless into the wild kind of heart within me. So mm -hmm. I had this like, I'm going to leave for Alaska. And I left for Alaska um, just like the day after I graduated high school, no place to live, just a backpack. Um, I did have a job lined out in a few weeks as a park ranger. Um, I got to Alaska. I'd never been West of Missouri, never seen mountains before. Um, I got off the plane and people on the plane who were like sitting next to me thought I was insane. And I was just like, as soon as I get off this plane, I'm going to go to those mountains. So I just started walking um, if you've ever like seen a big tall mountain in the distance and you're like, that thing's really close and then tried to walk to it, you realize it's, it's not close yeah. at all. It's like a multiple day walk. <laughs> um, so I quickly discovered that Anchorage is really spread out, like much of Alaska, lots of room, things are all over the place. Did not have money for a car. I only had $500 in my pocket. Um, I needed to get to and from places so i went and bought a bike for 300 bucks which at the time was like the most amount of money i had spent on anything i thought it was totally yeah. insane and i also did not know how to ride it because i did not know how to ride a bike at 19 um, interesting yeah so i bikes just weren't a part of your childhood not a part of my childhood at all cool um or where i grew up which is Partly why I've like returned to Missouri and Arkansas, which is a whole other topic we could discuss to see how like cycling as a culture has manifested in northern Arkansas, which is really fascinating because that's a culture I grew up with. And bikes were just not a cool thing, not even a thing you did as children. Um, yeah, no history of riding a bike until I moved to Alaska. And then it was just like getting places. It was not. It was associated with recreation, but the biking itself was not recreational. Um, and like a real turning point in my life, and I go into more details on this on the um, an article I think you referenced, which is the a reader's rig I did for bikepacking.com. But I had like a catastrophic mountaineering incident, like my caving and rope, rope work and that sort of background made me really want to do alpinism when I came up here. And my first winter, I... Um, nearly lost my leg in an accident um and i was told uh, i might not ever walk again i might not walk without a limp again i was told i definitely am not going to do like alpinism caving or um backpacking ever again and um that 
like gutted me. Like I had no idea what a future of value looked like anymore. Sure. Um, And I asked for some physical therapists who like were into those sorts of activities to like help me figure out what's, where do I go with my life next? Um, So I've had numerous major reconstructive surgeries on my uh, leg. I've dislocated my leg while bikepacking the Larumala across Cuba and the Baja Divide because of these traumatic injuries that still limit the way I get to recreate. But um, I came into, um, I really came into the love for biking um, that next year when my physical therapist said, hey, if you can't backpack to those locations why don't you bike to those locations and this is 2008 in alaska and to give you context of where the cycling world was at the time fat bikes like literally just were born like the um and i know that this is contentious but there's like a real reason why we adopted bikepacking as a term instead of touring and that differentiation between touring and bikepacking really was born in anchorage Wait, okay, um, let's get into that because yeah. I've talked about this a little bit, how, you know, at the end of the day, bike packing, bike camping, bike touring, at its root is essentially the same thing. You're riding somewhere self-supported with everything you need. Um, but you say they're different. So let's talk about that. What does yeah, that mean? So, and I think a lot of people feel like that this might be elitism or being pretentious. And I am very tuned into that. Like the, the world of cycling has tons of elitism. Like if you've been uncomfortable in a bike shop, you're not alone. Even those Mm -hmm. of us who are really knowledgeable don't like or appreciate some of the cultures around cycling. Um, so I understand and super empathize and totally, totally get this feeling that there's some sort of sense of style or you're doing it right or wrong. And there is no right or wrong way to do to like adventure by bike, especially ride what you've got. However, I designed bike components for a living, which we can get into, but like there is a need to differentiate between how you tour on a bike, just like how you ride anywhere on a bike. You need a different bike for riding on asphalt than for mountain bike trails. And there's a spectrum between like a downhill slope style mountain bike and like I'm only going to ride on the most pristine asphalt. There's a huge swath of different bikes within that spectrum. Bikepacking is exactly the same. There's a huge swath of gear that goes from this is what it does well and this is what it does poorly. Um, so bikepacking came about in Alaska, like Revelate Designs was making bags out of his garage, Eric, like just down the street from me when the first fat bikes came on, uh, like all terrain bikes, essentially, essentially like a geometry that's like a gravel bike with big fat tires. Now fat bikes are more like mountain bikes, but the first ones were more gravel bike in their geometry, but they were meant to ride on the snow, ride on beaches. Some of the first big routes in Alaska were thousand mile coastal rides Mm. where when you're bushwhacking, pushing your bike, like traditional panniers on a rack just didn't make a lot of sense for a lot of reasons. One is that they'd end up breaking in one way or another. 
And if you've never broken your rack and panniers and they work fine for you, then that's great. You've just never been riding it in a place in a way where you're going to break it. But if you want to bike the, you said you backpacked on the Kenai. Yeah. If you want to bike pack the Kenai 250 route, sure, you could do it with a rack and panniers. I've seen customers I've worked with at a local shop here when I was working for Fatback in Anchorage on the trail with their rack and panniers. And I was like, how is that treating you? And they were like, oh, great. Um, so I i don't want to be pretentious. I didn't say, well, that's not what I would take uh, for a number of reasons. I just said, that's awesome. I yeah. saw them next week in the bike shop and they came and I had to drill out some bolts that had broken off as the rack like cracked and stressed their frame because their bike was bouncing around and a rack is a giant lever that comes down to a tiny metric four bolt in almost every instance. Where's the weakest part of the rack? It's not the rack. You can make the strongest rack in the world. It's how it connects to your bike. Sure. And it's the fact that it's a giant lever. And like raw metal has a fatigue life because it's stiff. It will crack. It will fracture. When you strap a piece of fabric to your bike with Velcro, you know, it might not seem as strong as a metal rack. But it's not going to crack. It's not going to fracture. It might rub you the uh, the wrong way, which is its own problems. But <laughs> it's it's all about how you're weighting the bike, how the bike is shaped, and like what you're approaching, whether that's wind or trail, and how it behaves under vibrations, mm-hmm. and what those vibrations are like. Which you know, if we got into suspension conversations, it's a whole other conversations of like what are the v- vibrations bike like doing to your bike when we're designing things whether it's for bikepacking or anything else vibration is like a major consideration for how we design and engineer things and how much vibration is occurring and what kinds of vibrations like gravel has lots of teeny tiny vibrations which can be just as bad or damaging to a bike as a huge giant jump off of something because if you're riding your flow trail like your mountain bike flow trail, you might hit huge jump lines if you're really good. But <laughs> you might hit a huge jump line. Somebody I'm might. I'm not. <laughs> Most of us don't. I would say like 90 plus percent of us don't. But let, let's just say that you are good enough to hit like a big jump line. Those trails mostly are smooth up until the launch. Sure. Yeah. Whereas if you're riding a beat up old gravel road, it might not be considered quote unquote mountain biking, but your bike is taking significantly more beatings most of the time. And how we design things, we are thinking about, or I am at least, constantly thinking about vibrations and how it Mm -hmm. impacts the way we load, carry things, create uh, comfort or rigidity in a bike. So bikepacking applies those same concepts to that spectrum. Marley, Um, if we don't name this episode good, good, good vibrations, I'm going to be really disappointed. (laughs) I just want to throw that out there. Noted. Um, No, Cameron, I I 100% agree. I went on a bikepacking trip a couple years ago in Glacier, and um, I was using a rack and panniers because I was like, I want to pack all the things and I want to be comfortable. And the vibrations, like it broke both the the latch on my pannier, so the way that it hooked on Mm -hmm. thank god for zip ties and then multiple times throughout the trip i was stopping to re-tighten bolts um so yeah i 100 percent get what you're saying you know between bike touring and bike packing and the equipment that you're going to use um so yeah thanks for kind of digging into that um and And you can totally mix and match things too especially in gravel 
Oh yeah. Like, I love mixing and matching traditional touring things with traditional bikepacking things. There's no real okay, there's a right and wrong way if you end up, you know, totally hosed in the backcountry because everything just broke on you. But like ride what you got, test it out, see what works for you and what doesn't. Then make exactly adjustments from there. Yeah. Um, so this brings me to another point. Um, I was reading, I believe it was your bikepacking.com rig, um, which we'll put a link to this um, in the show notes, but you said you have a reputation for breaking bikes. Um, talk to us about that. Where, why are you breaking bikes? Um, what part of the bike is breaking? What have you done to change that? Um, yep. Any good stories? So, yeah. So, um, I, I would have to stop and think. I've, I've broken a multitude of frames in various ways. Um, I have broken a multitude of wheel sets in various ways. And like most of us, I've broken an a, a unknown amount of derailers and derailer hangers, which is by design, by the way, like a derailer hanger should break so that your frame doesn't break. So that if you're wondering why your derailer hanger is always being bent and your shifting's off because every time you go into a bike shop, they're like, oh, well, your derailleur hanger's been. It, the answer is not buying a more strong derailleur hanger that will just break your bike instead. They're meant to fail. So anyways, um, yeah, I've broken a lot of stuff. I have this obsession with always trying to like be more efficient and simple. Like it, I'm going to build as simple of a bike as possible, even though some of my bikes are totally outlandish, um, to do whatever that task is. So that's why... I basically only ride single speeds because I'm tired of messing around with derailers. I just don't use them anymore. I'm okay, that's super badass and hardcore. Full, right? full on single speed rider. It's just a different way of riding. And I feel much more in tune with the place. Again, I came to cycling as a, a, a means to like commune with space. Um, and then from that became a mountain biker. So like getting back to the roots of why I'm doing things like single speed, I could do a whole podcast whole podcast every week uh, just about single speeding so let's not go down that rabbit hole but <laughs> um fair enough the when i got episode. into bike packing i really wanted simplicity um so all my bikes were rigid kind of funny for somebody who works building suspension these days but um I let's think break I, like, that down great... real quick just because we we're trying not to use like super intense vocabulary so basically when you say rigid that means there's no front suspension and yep. there's no um squishiness right it's like yep. just a regular old bicycle that you would see anywhere yep a full suspension is going to have you know your rear suspension and front suspension a hard tail most people when they say hard tail it's a mountain bike with like a, just a fork in the front although now gravel bikes are coming with even up to full suspension but like yeah <laughs> a fork in the front or, or a squishy fork in the front and then when we say rigid what we usually mean is that there's no suspension anywhere on the bike which Really, there is always suspension, even if it's a rigid bike, because you once again, we get back to material science. You're you're basing a bunch of things from tires to frame material to a bunch of stuff on how much does it flex? How much does it deaden vibrations? Everything is actually absorbing something from the earth. And you can really get into the weeds here about that. But and things are always a trade off. So when I'm looking at bike packing. And I'm like, I'm aspiring to ride like across countries. That's really what I want to get, get into. And my backyard for testing is my kit working is Alaska. It's pretty. Alaska is bigger than a lot of countries. It is. It's huge. 
um, and very remote. Like you, if you, if something breaks, you're on your own. Um, I wanted ultimate simplicity. And for me, like, and, and the highest amount of efficiency as well. So I was riding a lot of large tires with no suspension at all. Very much like that fat bike, adventure bike. I was born in, as a cyclist in that space. And that's where I like started playing. Um, and what I found was without suspension, the way I was growing as a rider and as a 225 pound individual who will bring sometimes 80 pounds of gear, you know, I'm riding over a 300 pound load on a bike. Um, when, if you're riding aggressively with no suspension quote unquote like a fork or rear suspension what i was encountering were forces too great for parts of my frame and or wheel set mm -hmm. if you taco a wheel or you break your down tube or you break your seat tube um which i've done in the middle of big bike packing trips you're just straight up done like there is mm -hmm. there is no amount of competence you can have in the backcountry to overcome like i can fix a broken spoke I can't fix a tacoed rim. I right. can't fix a cracked down tube. I can't fix my seat post cluster failing. Um, and there came a point where I realized for what I was doing, I needed at least one bike in my quiver with some degree of suspension because it was becoming too dangerous to not have basically a get out of jail free card. What if mm -hmm. I hit something too hard? to absorb some degree of impact of that. Sure. So I think I, I, I came into this being like, I don't want suspension until I do need suspension. And I very much found that threshold <laughs> and made adjustments. So I have a question and I might be totally off base on this, um, but for a larger rider, so, you know, we're thinking 300, maybe 400 pounds is a bike with um, some suspension, maybe a good option for reducing the possibility of breaking a bike maybe i'm wrong on, on this bike. yes it's not a it's not first of all this isn't a full substitute for poor frame design i would suss mm -hmm. up some of my initial breaks to once again it's the early days of fat biking we've increased the rear triangle of the bike the stays um a lot wider and interfaced those stays with the seat post cluster in kind of a ways that were semi-traditional trying to fit larger tire volumes and there was just some poor frame design in there that probably was the main result of of the damages that were done so like not only is it better for your body and how you feel to get a good fitting bike getting a well-designed bike that's fit correctly will also increase that bike's lifespan because if you have to yeah. jack up the seat post way too tall or something like that, that's, again, a lever. Think of everything on a bike as, like, something that spins or something that's a lever. So if your seat post is a great big lever and you're running your seat post way, way too tall, you're putting a lot of force into your bike. So look at the bike specs. Make sure that, A, if you're buying something used, there's nothing wrong with that go to a buyer's inspection make sure it's not rusted out on the inside make sure that your bike is good um and make sure your bike is designed for those types of loads in mind it's amazing to me that you know i'm six foot one 225 pounds i'm not that abnormal even if the doctor says you know i'm in the higher weight category or, or whatever uh, 
and yet in the cycling world i'm already considered a quote-unquote clydesdale like a lot of bikes are not designed for me let alone whenever i put a bunch of camera gear and a bunch of equipment on it um so do that sort of homework first there's no substance you can't just buy something that's not meant for you in that category and then throw suspension on it and expect it to like repair that but with that being said yes suspension can work to dissipate the loads of the sort of stress that's coming onto the bike okay um especially with like wheels especially if you're if you bought like a mid fat bike or a fat tire bike because you want to explore places where you need that extra volume part of that extra volume process is letting more air out of your tires basically the bigger the tire is the more you get to play it with psi as like a a way of adjusting how the bike behaves on and with the environment, which is why a lot of people gravitate to fat bikes, even if they don't ride on sand or snow for bike packing. The problem as a bigger rider is all of a sudden we're worried about the ground hitting the rim, striking the rim, mm -hmm. biting the tubes. If you're running tubes, even tubeless, you know, you're burping the tire and sealants coming out the side all of that can be helped with suspension and it's really frustrating living in Alaska, you know, watching my 130 pound friend float over snow because they can run two PSI in their two in their tires. And I can't just because I weigh more and I'd be riding straight on rim. So, you know, not only will the suspension potentially help in the traditional ways you're thinking of, but it might like allow you to run lower tire pressures, which in turn is like building the whole system up to take, to ride more efficiently and to like dissipate that load in a better way. Interesting. I love this. Cause like me and Maggie are both bigger folks. Um, but I'm definitely not as like technical as, um, you are Cameron. So it's really, it's kind of fun to, to talk about this in a more technical way. Um, I'm tempted to ask what's your tire pressure, but I'm not going to because I know it's such a variable question. It's a super variable question. It totally depends on the bike and the terrain you're riding on. And, and the honestly, day and the weather. And <laughs> I ride a lot by, I could make a guess of what it feels like. Some people are big sticklers for bringing the little pressure gauge out there. Honestly, if you did like, if you bought like seven of the same pressure gauges at a bike shop and you use them all next to each other, they're probably not that accurate. So if you're like yeah. comparing one to the other, even if they're the same brand, there's some variability in the tire pressures. Um, but for me, it's a lot. I've just, in Alaska, you're constantly changing tire pressure in the winter. So I just reach down and it's kind of become I don't want to be that guy and rude, but if I see somebody struggling out on the trail, I might just go by and be like, do you mind if I feel your tire pressure, like feel it? And um, then I ask, you know, would you like me to help make an adjustment? You know, I'm, I don't want to assume anything, but most people are just amazed by like doing a small adjustment to, to tire pressure. They're like, I have changed my saddle. I have changed my bars. I have, you know, basically wanted to buy a whole new bike when just adjusting the tire pressure basically built them a new bike within a few seconds and when you say adjusting it are you typically adding more air or are you letting air out in the winter in alaska we're often letting air out okay yeah and i think that can be counterintuitive to folks because you know you always think you got to feel your tire and make sure it's like as hard as a orange or an apple or whatever fruit of choice it is <laughs> um but it is it's such a variable thing depending on 
so many different factors. Well, there's just like so many other things, like there's a diminishing return on too much air and too little air as far as efficiency goes. And that's also based on where you're at. So a lot of people who might want to get faster or more efficient are like, well, I got to put my PSI closer to the peak range of PSI when studies have shown. And if you write enough, you'll just figure it out. You know, that top higher level of firmness of your tire often does not equate to more efficiency or on the terrain that you're looking to ride. Like lower PSIs are often way faster given where you're riding. Yeah. Um, I don't have anything else to add about PSI. Do you, Maggie? I don't um, think about it a lot, honestly. I think that's, <laughs> I think that's most folks. What I will say, though, yeah. is, and I, I've given this advice countless times, you need a good pump. Um, I don't care yep. who you are, what kind of bike you're riding. Um, you need to have a pump um, be, because tires lose air. It's a natural thing. And before each and every ride, you should be checking to make sure that your tires are aired up. Otherwise, you're going to be sad and it's going to feel a lot harder than it needs to. Um, I have often, uh, similar to you, Cameron, you know, when you roll up next to somebody at a stoplight, um, it's always the awkward thing of like, do I say something? Do I not? But if they look like they're riding very, very low pressure and maybe it's not intentional, I might ask like, hey, um, you know, when was the last time you aired up your tires or do you want to borrow my pump? Um, it's always a delicate balance, though. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, as being um, a white dude presenting person, <laughs> I especially don't want to make those assumptions. Um, however, I also want to be a good um, ambassador for the sport. So it's always yeah. just trying to it's a case by case thing. Um, but if you're riding behind somebody in Alaska and they're on snow, we will lose a degree of efficiency to snow no matter what. Sure. If, you hit it spot on. You're the best tire, the best pressure for that day. If you haven't ridden on snow, first of all, you don't really get how variable it is. It's as if each every time you go and ride on gravel or asphalt or dirt, it's a completely different consistency um, and requires a totally different like approach to it. So um, we're all already at some degree of efficiency loss. I would bet if if I'm watching somebody and their PSI is too high and I'm watching their tire spin out as they're trying to climb something, their efficiency loss is probably at or greater than 50%. That means 50% of your energy is just lost. Mm -hmm. You're like, wow, this is really hard. It's because it is really hard. <laughs> <laughs> You're just throwing away half your work. And nobody wants to be doing that. No. And, you know, I know there's a lot of getting back to like cycling can feel pretentious and do I need these things? And, you know, how do we have these conversations around that? Tubeless can be a very pretentious and hard to understand place as well. And as we're talking PSIs and tractions and the nuances of, you know, bikes, tubeless can go a long way in helping your PSI range increase. Your highs mm -hmm. are a bit higher, your lows are a bit lower. Um, if you're a bigger bodied rider, you're less likely to pinch flat your tube. Um, but the way the, the profile of the wheel is shaped towards the high PSI end and the low PSI end is also different. And you tend to get more variety out of your pressure ranges when you're running tubeless. And as a person who likes to bike pack specifically in like interesting and diverse biomes and places where the dirt might change five times on a bike packing trip, 
having a tire that I can tune along the way mm. is really worth the effort, the effort that that's a long like path of learning, I think for most cyclists, but it is like, we want to find the silver bullet that we buy X and put it on our bike and we just become a better rider. Well, changing your PSI is one of those things that you can't spend an amount of money to like gain that level of additional benefit. Yeah. And the nice thing is, is once you get comfortable with your bike and how your valves work, um, cause that's also a learning curve. Um, it's an easy adjustment that you can make that doesn't cost any money. Um, you know, you can ride on the trail and you can let air out. You can always put more air in. It's a little bit more difficult on the side of the road. Um, but those are easy adjustments that you can make. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Can I change the, the, the topic a little bit? Yep. Let's, let's go. Okay. I can just, I can feel myself getting bored talking about tires. I imagine <laughs> our listeners are maybe at the same place. I don't know. Again, I don't have a filter. Um, <clears throat> so one of the other hats that you wear is filmmaker. Um, mm -hmm. You mentioned it a little bit that you carry a lot of film equipment or camera equipment. Um, the first time that I guess it was introduced to you, you had made a film called trike packing some assembly required that followed. Um, I was it your friend who was on the tricycle. Yep. Jeffrey Glennon. Um, followed Jeffrey and a group of friends out bikepacking on a tricycle. And I remember, I think you guys had submitted it to Swift Industries as mm -hmm. part of their Swift um, uh, overnight. They had a, a film competition. And I remember watching that and saying, oh my God, like that is so awesome because Jeff lives in a bigger body, but his friends stuck with him the whole day and took care of him. And when he looked like had a pretty horrific fall, they were there for him. Um, so tell us, how did trike packing come about? And um, yeah. tell us all about it. Yeah. So um, so you have to go back to like the full on COVID times. Like everybody's isolating. Um, Swift, the camp out challenge uh, was like film and shoot in a week. I like the premise of that. That seemed really cool. Um, Jeffrey Glennon was part of like a 10 person COVID bubble we had up here. And that was truly like the only 10 people I saw in my life face to face. Mm. Um, I had just had and had to like do all the COVID precautions to go into the hospital and have surgery. I had just had another knee major reconstructive surgery. Um, so I was also getting back to like trying to find energy on a bike. That was my like my first mileage of any significance after my knee surgery. And I had messaged Jeff that I wanted to do a film for this challenge, this one week challenge there. They, um, we went to college together. They used to be a DJ. So they're always doing audio stuff. So I was like, this could be a cool collaborative project. I'm injured and you've never done bikepacking before. And like that last winter we purchased a, um, like a group of friends brought a, bought a trike for Jeff because they never learned how to ride a bike. And they kind of always felt like the outlier in a group of friends that are always riding bikes around, especially during COVID where they're like, I don't know how to be active in the community. Anchorage has tons of greenways and like outside of uh, game nights and whatnot, the rest of the group is always outside. Um, and I was also kind of isolated with my knee injury. So we got to crafting this idea. Um, and um, yeah, I did some work on the track. It was a single speed as most trikes are from like your local target or whatever. Um, 
and I put on an internal gear hub, like took the whole like bike apart, rebuild one of the wheels. It was a fun tinkering project when I couldn't really, um, I couldn't ride the weeks leading up to it. I was still like in a knee wrap managing the, the wounds and like in the garage with like my knee propped up on a stool, uh, dealing with swelling and like building the trike. It was, I, I really love tinkering. So that was just a cool premise that the, the storyline doesn't even get into, but working with Jeff to like put gears and internal gear hub on his trike. Um, then we went out and rode and this is like Jeff's first time riding a tricycle from like point A to point B, like ending up in a new space. So we, we rented a cabin like in the back country in the woods, like next to a huge mountain and the, the, um, uh, a lake it's autumn. So the colors are like really beautiful. It's the first termination dust snow in the mountains. Um, it was the first time it's dark enough that we could see auroras and we just happened to have like a great Aurora show. Um, and yeah, Jeff had a major spill. Um, because if you're going on a trike down a paved steep mountain road, I mean, if you're a larger bodied rider to begin with, you realize that inertia is all your mm -hmm. friend or foe, depending on if you want to go faster or not. You know, mm -hmm. it's definitely your foe going up things, but you know, <laughs> maybe your friends who are way faster on the uphills can't even begin to catch you on the downhills. You know, Jeff was enjoying that experience of having a tricycle and all the inertia going down the hills, but trikes are not very nimble. So this was like down a steep yeah. mountain into like where a stream cut across the road and there's a bridge and then it turns, you know, turns to the left. Well, Jeff did the turn to the left and the trike just got up on two wheels as trikes do at high speeds. And so Jeff's got this tricycle on two wheels, probably at like 30 miles an hour and doesn't know what to do. I wouldn't know what to do. Jeff later on was like, yeah, what do you do when stuff like that happens? And we're all like, how if I know? Yeah, who knows? <laughs> he decided just to throw himself off the road, which um, maybe not the worst decision. It ended up working out really well because he like landed in brambles that helped cushion the fall. There was this piece of like fence line rebar that was sticking out right near him that would oh. probably have proved lethal if he was like three feet to the right which oh my God. i don't want to like dwell on that but um <laughs> anyways some folks rode back got a vehicle helped move him he was most of the way there um and then we just had community at the uh cabin um as far as how we worked on the project uh, one week to edit it, I asked Jeff to record his piece. I had no stipulations of what that would look like. So all of Jeff's words, and I didn't want to show him the footage either. I wanted like his genuine audio journal from that trip, unfiltered by me, unfiltered by my cinematography. Because, you know, if you're doing cinematography, even if I don't speak to Jeff about what I'm doing, there's still the bias of me being the camera person. So I wanted a completely unbiased take from Jeff. Um, then I went back and found some of his um, DJ sampling work from like college. And that's what I used for the background music. 
in the piece. And um, yeah, I was really proud of that for that short of a time frame. It also won um, uh, accolades. It was uh, bikepacking.com's indie filmmaker award list for uh, the year. Um, It really is such a joyful, like it's a five minute film. Um, We'll put a link to it in the podcast, but highly recommend everybody go watch it just to like, sorry, interrupt you, but like to see Jeff and his friends go out and adventure and like, to see kind of the joy on his face getting out there with everybody. It's a super feel good film. Um, I didn't know what it was going to look like in the end. And I really, in the moment, like when Jeff wrecked was like, I don't even know if I can make anything about this. Um, but it ended up making the film all the more like there's the arc, the storyline arc. And like, it gave it a real traditional feel. Um, but also like a lot more depth to it. Um, and, you know, when I published that, all of the friends up here were like, there's no way you're not going to win this. <laughs> and then True Marmalade, if you don't follow them on Instagram, another big cyclist out of Texas, uh, worked with Studio Ghibli, you know, Howl's Moving Castle and all that, yeah, to yep. the green screen. And um, I was like, oh, there's no way that I'm going to win this now. Like Studio Ghibli partnered with <laughs> this person. I remember that. Yep. Um, so really honored uh to have gotten those accolades on that um yeah it was just i've always wanted to do filmmaking from the saddle um and it's all been a self-taught journey all just mostly me working alone and um yeah it's something i'm still honing and working on and aspiring to that is remarkable um and actually, let's talk about another film that you made um, that is going to be in the Film by Bike Film Festival, um, Chingona. Um, I forget what the, what the, what's the full title, Chingona. Um, um, a Badass Chicana and Her Bike. Yes. Um, and that profiles Olivia, um, Olivia Frankie, who is going to be a guest on our podcast next week um, and her journey towards SBT Gravel. Um, so I don't want to give away too much because we are going to talk to Olivia about this. Um, but suffice it to say that even though you're self-taught, Cameron, you you definitely have a knack for for storytelling, especially from the saddle. Yeah, um, and I use there's a plane. I don't know if you can hear it. No. No. Okay, good. Well, very <laughs> loud. Um yeah, I I did a number of things similar with Chingona in the fact that I started a collection of videos that I wasn't really sharing with Olivia because I wanted to get her unfiltered narrative piece. Um, That worked out really well before. Um, And then, but there was more editing back and forth with Olivia on that and how we wanted that to look. But like before I started putting a collection of video to what she said, you know, I wanted to give her space to do her voice completely uh, in that process. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to like edit footage and and try to have her fit some sort of narrative to what I developed. I wanted to put it to what she had done. Um, And what was interesting from a filmmaking standpoint on that is I started filming her like a whole year before that came out. So it was about the training process as soon as she applied for it and you're going to be talking to her. So there's a whole great, beautiful story about how she felt after she applied for the right for racial justice sbt gravel um grant and then how we started filming that and then me going to sbt gravel to ride with her and film her um and how that all 
came to be. Um, but yeah, another really heartwarming piece. I know that I cried probably an hour's worth during, I mean, it's a five minute, once again, another very short, very consumable little narrative piece. I like doing shorts. Um, but, you know, for for every five minutes, I'm spending hundreds of hours to make that five minutes. And in yeah. this one, I, I, I probably cried at least an hour's worth of tears while <laughs> developing it. So it's also very emotional for me. The cool thing about Chingona, and I'm sure you're going to dig into this with Olivia. So this is just a little teaser from when you all talk is that Chingona is actually part of a three movie or film piece series. Mm -hmm. So this is one of two others to come one that we've already shot um and the other one um will be culminating in this great big bikepacking trip that has yet to unfold so can you tell us a little about that where is where is that going to be well um i don't fully know and neither does olivia because um chingona 2 is her riding with her frame builder who built her gravel bike in North Carolina. Um, and that's its own really cool piece of growth from the first film. And as a writer, ride for racial justice athlete, as a BIPOC individual, as a um, a uh, queer individual, as a larger bodied person, Olivia is at an intersection of a bunch of things that don't always fit well in cycling. And that's yeah. Um, where this next piece is really going to like hone in on those tendrils. Um, but then the third piece is a lot about healing and like family ties because Olivia's also adopted another intersection. And again, I don't want to speak for her any more than just that. Let her speak about her intersectionality, but she does not know exactly where her roots are from. Um, so we just ordered this week a 23andMe like deep dive test about where her ancestry is from and traveled to. And she will take that information. And we've already got a couple of uh, bikepacking trips this summer that are practice runs for her, not just in like longer bikepacking trips, but also um, we're like going to fly to Nome and we're going to bike out of Nome to these remote hot springs in the you know, in the Arctic Circle. And that um, that trip is Olivia practicing building her first bikepacking routes, you know, from scratch. Because this is kind of like throwing darts at a board. Olivia thinks she might know approximately where she's from, but we don't honestly know um, until that data comes to us. And then she's going to build a route and then go bike around where she's from. And... Yeah. Um, I fully anticipate a lot more tears on my editing keyboard. <laughs> I think yes, there's only going to be so many times in my life I get to film something like this. I take it really seriously. Um, yeah. I think that love well, that you have for both Olivia and for cycling and for the land really shines through in all your projects. So I'm really excited to yeah. see what you come up with. Yeah. And a lot of my work is shot from the saddle, literally. Like I have done a ton a ton of work trial and error that i've never seen articles about online a part of me feels like i should write something or do a piece for bikepacking or somewhere yes. that talks about how to ride and shoot and yeah. the journey to do that um so much of my growth as a cyclist even the way i ride a bike now has been 
altered by riding and shooting on the bike. Um, and I don't know of anybody else that's doing it the way that I'm doing it right now. And that's not me necessarily tooting my own horn. That's just like, if you watch my films, they feel different, I think, than almost anything else out there. Because yeah. I am filming with this huge rig off my chest. Mm-hmm. And giving you like my point of view from a bike, but usually giving you the words and feelings of somebody else. With that, so there's another video, Tunnels of Gold. You mentioned that for the first two, you asked the person to like do their narration without watching the video. And I know that you narrate Tunnels of Gold. So did you like record yourself talking about the trip without viewing like before you started editing that together? No, that was a very different process. And um, I base that on, um, there's another longer, if you get to my YouTube channel, which is not as known about as like my Instagram channel. um, We will have a link to it in the bio. Thank you. You'll you'll find a couple of things that I narrate. And a lot of those I base, if I feel like I'm going to do something with the footage, or I have ambitions with it, I usually start recording on just my cell phone audio journals. Um, okay. And then I'll take those journals from the trip because I want like the raw feeling of what it's like there, not like filtered over. Because a lot of what we do is type two fun. And I I love tearing, telling like the feel good stories. Like that's great. And I'm my friends will tell you I sugarcoat a lot of things, which I understand, especially like white dudes in the outdoor industry tend to do. And I don't want to like downplay that we're just doing hard shit, all of us. Um, so like taking a type two fun experience when you're scared or hurt or it's difficult and like recording that in the moment, like when I'm laying in, in my tent at night and I've had a really hard day, like trying to capture those moments. So at least when I come back and build something, I can put that in there somewhere is something that is, I'm beginning to see not only my art, but like as a person in Western society, like that's part of my privilege that I'm trying to dismantle by trying to capture vulnerable moments in how I'm thinking about the end product. I think even just your willingness to talk about crying um, as a white cis man um, or white presenting um, is huge. Um, And conversations about being vulnerable are really important for all of us. So thank you for demonstrating and modeling that. Yeah. Um, So we're just about done. We've got a couple last questions, Um, but I want to go back to kind of the beginning of our conversation. Um, We we haven't talked a whole lot about your work with suspension and building bikes and experience working with bigger bodied folks. Um, So do you have any advice for um, people in bigger bodies or heavier riders um, for how to modify their bikes or what to look for in a bicycle or just what they can do to make their bike work better for them? if they're bigger than usual. Yeah, that's a great um, topic area. Once again, I I just got to reiterate that like getting a bike that fits you and that feels right. And if you're like, this really just doesn't feel right. Part of it is putting in the time, especially like if the saddle is hurting you. Um, That's just putting in time, unless you just go to single speed where you're off the saddle most of the time, which is why if I sit in the saddle too long, I am basically like somebody who's never rode a bike because I'm just not sitting down. (laughs) But um, anyways, like you can't just buy fancy parts, throw it at a bike. That's not 
working for you fit wise. And I know that getting into it, sometimes it's hard to tell that difference. Um, so that's just like, find somebody that's not demoralizing. That's not an asshole towards you. That's wanting you to have a good time who might be more knowledgeable. If you can't find anybody, you know, you're going to attach my contact information. Just, just get a hold of me directly. If you can't find anybody. We are. Um, and it's, because- it's remarkable what you can tell just by looking at a photo or a short video of somebody. Um, obviously there's nothing better than being in person for a bike fit, but it's huge to just even be able to look at somebody and say, well, you could adjust this, this, this maybe for some comfort. Yep. So there's the, there's two folds and they seem like paradoxical, which is as a larger body person, you're probably going to have to make adjustments. Also, you can't adjust away everything. Like you need to have at least a decent foundation for where you're at. Um, So from there, you know, a lot of the same basic principles that can apply to anyone can apply to a bigger body person as well, uh, which is what we just said. And then also like, if you're making investments, if you're bought like a middle of the line bike and you need, you want to make it a little bit better, like wheel improvements are always a better place to spend money than most other things. Like you can buy like blingy parts, colorful stems, like, other than changing the fit, like a colorful stem might be really cool. And I have lots of them myself, but like, they're not making you more comfortable. Uh, It might make you want to ride your bike more and there's value in that, but it's not making you more comfortable. Like a lighter weight wheel set is a place where being, I'm not a weight weenie at all, but saving weight in your wheels will help you feel faster and more energetic. And then as far as suspension goes, you know, um, suspension can go a long way. If you need it, I think a big question up front is, do you need it? If so, why? Um, because, you know, you, I think you've got a bike recently that's like a cross country bike with an inverted uh, lefty fork. Um, yes. Yeah. So like inverted forks, which is what I build, are really, 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 really great at micro vibration dampening. They tend to more readily engage with like small vibrations, which if you're a larger body rider and you're like, I'm not doing big jumps, but I just feel like I'm getting jarred too much. It's making me tired. It's making my, my shoulders hurt. It's making my sit bones hurt. Um, or I'm breaking the bike. You know, maybe what you want is like a smaller vibration deadening than like a great big jump, like fork, in which case, like the lefty you're riding or a Rin inverted fork, which we do have products that are rate weight rated to larger riders. Um, can, the the design of an inverted fork and we probably don't have time to get into the reasons why but they are much better at small bump vibrations which are often what people want to reduce away and they're not necessarily looking for like that i'm gonna go slope style down whistler um and then having a fork that you can tune how progressive it is and there's multiple ways to do that you might get a fork to have these little spacer reducers that go inside of it they'll call them like little pucks um or uh you might get a fork from like mrp or once again Ren sports who i work for um that has a uh multiple chambers of air where one chamber of air um it, it changes how the primary chamber functions and when we talk about progression what we talk about is how as a fork suspends, as a piece of suspension suspends, whether it's the, the fork or the rear shock, as it moves through its travel, the maximum amount it can travel telescope up or down, um, the way it 
behaves changes. So it's not a linear progression. Even the most linear progressive suspensions still have some degree of change over time. For a big, bigger bodied rider, if you don't adjust your progression, often what you end up with is something that has so much air in it that it's overpowering maybe your damper and how it returns. It can feel very forceful, kind of like a pogo stick without control. Like it, it wants to kick back at you. So that's not a, that, that might actually make you more tired than a rigid bike if your fork is constantly kicking you back really aggressively. And I have worked with some larger riders where we'll turn the damper on, which is how the fork rebounds back, like how smooth or how not smooth that rebound is. Um, we'll dial that as slow a return as possible. But because we've aired the fork up so much more than where the industry thought the fork would be aired to, it's overwhelming that return rate. And it's still returning too aggressively. So if you have the ability to tune the progression, which is how the fork goes through its travel, you can actually tune the progression way more aggressively where you will engage the fork's travel. It starts moving through its travel, but quickly begins to hit this very aggressive progression wall where it's very hard to make the fork max out. If that makes any sense at all, I know that's complicated. I wish I could, could like show people, but it kind of makes sense. Um, I'm hoping that you know, for some of the industry pros who are hopefully listening, I'm hoping it makes sense for them because that is often a question that we get: is how do we work with larger bodied riders? Um, and I think you know, for anyone thinking about suspension, um, when you go into a bike shop, they are likely going to need to know how much you weigh. And it's not because they want to scream it from the rooftops, but it's because they want your bike set up properly for you. And to be safe. Like there's straight up some bikes that if you're a 300 pound rider are not safe for you. Just not. Um, is there and... a way to tell that besides looking at like the owner's manual? Um, is there any other way some to know? Some bikes don't bike even have that information available at all, unfortunately. Um, there are some basic industry tests that are rated to that, like ISO fatigue testing. Um, but yeah, that's that's a really hard thing. And I, there's no silver bullet answer to that question. And also, um, you know, in the world where there's like carbon fiber and stuff, like most manufacturers are not talking about how they're laying up their carbon fiber, what kind of epoxies they're using in it, how many sheets they are using in it, in, in it, and more than likely it's going to change throughout the bike. Whereas like a uh, traditional tubing, you might be able to at least know what alloy it is. You could dig in and say, what's the wall thickness? Now that's a lot of burden on the average person, but like as a bike builder, I am often looking at websites where I want to know some really specific information and that information is not available at all period. So like people ask, is it safe to bike on this carbon fiber bike because of a bunch of misnomers about carbon fiber, carbon fiber can be an excellent bike packing material for a rider, even a larger rider. But because the industry sells carbon fiber as the lightest thing, they tend to underbuild it to be lighter. So it's not the carbon fibers fault. It's the designing's fault. And the fact that we don't share transparently what that looks like, unless I just took a hacksaw and cut a fancy carbon fiber bike in half, you know, even then I still don't know everything. Yeah. So I think the companies that want people to know who are bigger bodied are going to tell them what those limits are. So 
find a company that does that or is willing to work with you, you know, just reaching out to a company for me, like having a company that will respond to an inquiry is a big value in what I'm purchasing. There are some products out there that I like that have horrendous customer service. And over the years, I have phased those out. I just don't want that product on my bike. Yeah, I think it's a really good point that as consumers, you can reach out to companies. They all have customer support teams. So if you're not finding out, you know, what the weight limit on that seat post is or on that new bike, reach out. Most of them have chatbots or not even chatbots, but ways to interact with them to figure it out. So um, always better to be safe and ask than get something that is going to be unsafe for you to ride. And the cycling industry really, really needs to be more inclusive. And I'm seeing that transition and I want to see it more. So if a company is not willing to answer your questions in an honest way that are really not only your comfort, but your safety, then in my opinion, they're not worthy of your investment. Exactly. They should prioritize getting back to you on those sorts of things. Yeah. Well, that is a really good place to um, kind of close out this conversation. But before we go, we have two questions that we ask every single guest. Um, I don't know if you've listened to the show and know what's coming. Um, But my favorite question to ask is, what is your perfect day on a bike? I... There's so many perfect days on the bike, which is part of the reason why I love biking. At this point, I've grown to like biking in so many different ways that there's a there's just a plethora of perfect bike days. Um, I am ADHD badly and do not find flow states very easily. And my perfect timings on a bike are when I'm in the flow, when my brain slows down and I can like just be, just be me. Um, what my mind's eye tells me that I should share is breaking down camp and starting the day with the sun beginning to warm you. And it's been cold. You've had your coffee. You're like, I know it's going to be hot in the middle of the day. It's a summertime bikepacking trip and I'm bikepacking in the mountains. So I more than likely put up camp at the base of a mountain because it's probably a little bit warmer because I'm at a lower elevation and winds tend to prevailing winds tend to blow up mountains in the morning and down them at night. So I've picked a way to warm up with a tailwind. Um, so I've got a tailwind at my back. I'm warming up. The sun's hitting me. And I probably was questioning last night whether I should just bail because bikepacking is hard and I'm <laughs> probably only halfway through bikepacking across Mexico or something and I'm like ah I'm going to fly home because this is stupid and now it's noon and I'm like in my flow state and the sun is on me and everything's perfect that sounds dreamy it does and then our other ending question is what is something that you wish more people asked you about something you could get to talk about a little more I thought a lot about this one Um, so you have listened (laughs) yeah (laughs) and (laughs) Um, I get a lot of really bike nerdy questions and I've wondered, like, part of that's because I do a lot of weird things where people are like, how did you do that? And I'm like, well, I just milled it with a mill. <laughs> like, it's not something you're going to go buy at a store. Um, and I love nerdy questions. I love tinkering and that sort of thing. But it gets back to this feeling of like, kind of, it's an insider's club and the people that 
know the funky details of a question are the ones asking that are like steeped in that industry. Yeah. I just want more people to feel comfortable asking me any questions, particularly the easy ones or the ones that they feel stupid, because I tend to get a very skewed towards super nerdy questions on my social media accounts and through my work, where I know that there's a lot more people who have a lot more basic questions. And I don't get tired of answering those. In fact, I rarely get them, I think, just because of my reputation. And I don't want to be that. Like, I would much rather answer those other questions. Um, so that's, that's like, my primary answer to this question. If I really wanted to get, like, nerdy in the weeds, I want more people asking me questions about filmmaking on a bike. Um, those in the weeds I would like because I'm just as nerdy about my camera equipment. I build right. my lenses from scratch and oh, nobody geez. would know that nobody's ever asked me about that. It never comes up in any of the films that I do. Um, like COVID I probably spent, I don't know, thousands of hours building a lens that I shoot with and maintaining it on a trail and like taking it apart and making those adjustments not because of any real gains, just because I'm a weird person. Um, <laughs> but like, that's a conversation I truly never get to have. It's an intersection between two things that you might get some conversations about biking and media. You might get some conversations about weird lens building in that very odd world. But like having them at this cross section is not something I've ever experienced. Uh, uh, truly ever. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe after the show, um, you will get questions about that. Um, I know I am not the one to ask that because I don't even know what you're talking about. I mean, I kind of <laughs> do, but not really. Uh, <laughs> but um, Cameron, this has been so enlightening. I have learned a lot. I have a lot of things I'm going to go look up, um, including what an inverted suspension looks like. Um, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't really know what it means. So I'm going to go look it up and see what you're talking about. Um, but we will have links to all of your social media. Um, but if folks want to catch up with you, where do they find you? Where can they get in touch with you? Um, I am actually taking a brief. Well, I don't even know if it's brief. I'm taking a much needed. That's better. Social media break. It's Good the first for you. time I've turned off Huzzah. my Instagram since I started it. And it really am trying to ride without a camera because I have oversaturated my rides with cameras. Um, that doesn't mean I'm not doing multimedia. It also does not mean I'm not able to be reached through those social media channels because I do have a background app that just shows me who's communicating through those. And I am checking communications because what I didn't want to do is just totally isolate people from communicating with me. I sure. want the community. I just don't want to have the social media right now in my life constantly making me feel guilty about not posting or that like I don't care if my posts don't get views anymore I don't care if I'm not growing my channel my personal channels I just truly don't give a shit I yeah. want to post meaningful things to meaningful people um and to do that I'm just giving a giant f you to the social media algorithms and taking sure. a break from it but I'm still reachable through my Instagram probably the easiest way to get a hold of me um which is renaissance.cyclist um my gmail is the same renaissance.cyclist at gmail.com you can reach me at either of those two spots and if you find that I'm not 
being reactive on one, just jump to the other. I, I probably got buried somehow. And you're not annoying me. Just email me again. <laughs> All right. Well, you guys heard it here. Um, reach out to Cameron. Um, we really, really appreciate your time. Yeah. And um, yeah, look for part three of Chingona to come out at some point. Yeah, probably not until next year. So Chingona 1 is filmed by back this year. Chingona 2 is at some point. It's already been filmed, but I have not started work on it, which is the biggest part. Chingona 3 next year. All right. Well, Perfect. thank you for your time. Thank you. Yeah. This is an All Bodies on Bikes podcast powered by Feisty Media. The show is produced by Maggie and Marley and edited by the team at Feisty Media. Thanks for listening.